Good morning. What a fun week, right? Everybody get punched in the face all week long? I hope so, because I sure did. Um, Before we get started, very quickly, everybody got the down low on our donations? You know my favorite thing to donate is tampons and pads. Did you know that? No, really, because who else is going to do that? I love that we can do that in this setting, and so I was really excited that we found, first of all, just a really great ministry, and it was nicely timed. I don't know if you guys um, caught all the end it movement stuff that was going on last week, and so this is a very tangible way for us to help with this issue of human trafficking and with the exploitation of women, and so getting to help out with this Restored Hope Ministries is just a really hands-on way to reach out to our society's version of widows and orphans. So I hope that you guys will bring your donations for these women, and I'm excited to see how that's going to go. We're going to collect for the next um, four weeks on that, and also just remember, next week, don't come here. You can come here, but you're going to have a very quiet time here by yourself because I will be gone. We're going to be breaking for spring break next week, so just keep that in mind. And then we will be back, and we're going to finish strong after spring break. Um, James is not going to let up on us until the very end. Well, he's not going to let up on us at the very end either. He's going to carry it all the way through. So last week we talked about genuine faith bearing the fruit of good works, right? We said that when you say that you have faith, there must also be works that accompany it that attest the truth of your faith. And so I wanted to give you a term to kind of wrap your mind around what we're saying. And that term is practical atheism. When we profess that we believe something and then we live as though we don't, that is what we are becoming. So you know what an atheist is. An atheist is someone who says that there is no God, right? And then lives accordingly. And a practical atheist is someone who can actually exist within the church. It is someone who professes that God exists and then lives as if he does not continues on in patterns of disobedience and disregard. And so what you and I don't want to be, and what James was pushing back against last week, was the idea that we can say that God is who he says he is and then live a life that in no way demonstrates the truth of that claim. So um, Stephen Charnock, don't buy this book. It's a giant thick book on the attributes of God, but it is a really good book. And he has strong words about... um, about this idea of practical atheism. He says, men may have atheistical hearts without atheistical heads. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. A God forgotten is as no God to us. If we do not firmly believe there is a God, we shall pay him no steady worship. And if we believe not the excellency of his nature, we shall offer him but slight service. So the reason that we come here to dig into scripture is that we would behold the nature and character of God in a new way, in a deeper way, and that we would be so stirred by what we see that obedience flows naturally from our love and awe at who he is. So this week we're going to pick up with the new marker for genuine faith, but it's actually something that James has introduced before. He's just now going to really dig into it. Genuine faith chooses words with care. Genuine faith chooses words with care. And we're in James chapter 3. So we're about halfway through the book, which is good because we're halfway through the study. So we're keeping on track. And we are going to do verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3. So let me just begin by reading through the passage and I'll stop partway through. We'll start to kind of pull apart what's going on here. Starting in verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Okay, let's just stop right there. 
So you can know that whatever you were going through this week with regard to sins of the tongue, I was getting hit pretty hard myself. Not many of you should become teachers. The NIV says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we teach and we judge with greater strictness. So what James has in view here is people who hold the office of teacher within the church. So you know if you're a mom or if you um, have ever like been over a small group or anything like that, that there is an element of teaching to everything that we do. Even Lindy, when she comes up here and she sings, for us and leads us in worship, she is in some way teaching something. And that's something that is true of all of us. We all have areas in which we are a teacher, but what James is, and it's good actually to go ahead and apply some of what James is saying here to that, but what he is actually talking about specifically here is people who have a teaching office within the life of the church. So um, why why would we be judged with greater strictness? You know, why does it matter? Why should I be held to a higher account than other people? I mean, obviously, there is a great deal at stake if I stand up here and tell you something that is not true, but say it in such a way that you believe it. I remember one of the first things that Jeff said to me early on in our marriage was he said, um, hey, you know what? When you say something, you're really convincing, and people act on what you say. So you better make sure that what you're saying is true. It was chilling to me. He was not even trying to call me out on anything. Like I hadn't done anything wrong at that point. He was just pointing out to me, do you realize that you influence people with your words? And the thing was, is I knew it. Like I knew that I could influence people with my words, but I wasn't afraid of it. I was actually fascinated by it. Like anyone who has this, doesn't have the fear of public speaking, you know how they say that people fear that more than death? I don't know if you've ever heard that statistic. Like people are more afraid of public speaking than of dying. Well, I don't have that. I mean, that didn't hit me. I'm like, sure, let's go. Let's get up in front of people. And so sometimes when you have just a gift of public speaking, you can be so fascinated with the power to move people or to draw people into your line of thought that you lose a healthy fear of it. And when we're dealing with teaching the words of Scripture to people in a way that clearly represents what Scripture means to say, not what I mean to say, we can never lose a sense of that reverent fear. And so the thing that is so difficult for a teacher, for someone who has has that in in view is to not be so fearful of saying the wrong thing that you never say anything but at the same time to hold on to a right fear so that you don't say just whatever comes into your head so saint augustine um, said this i think it sums it up pretty well he said you are my god my life my holy delight but is this enough to say of you can any man say enough when he speaks of you Yet woe betide those who are silent about you, for even those who are most gifted with speech cannot find words to describe you. I stand up here every week and I know that even if I give my very best to the teaching, I can't possibly articulate well enough the beauty of the God that is in Scripture to you. And so there's a piece of me that says, maybe I shouldn't even try. Because also, what if I do it wrong? And then there's a piece of me that says, but what if I'm silent? What if we continue on another week thinking that God is less than he is? Thinking that he is less glorious than we have, should be giving him the credit for being. And so every week I come back and I do it again. But what is so funny to me is how often I'll have 
I mean, not so much you guys, you guys know me, but when I speak in other places, you know, go and travel to other churches or whatever, there's always some sweet young girl who will come up and say, I want to do what you do. And she's like so excited. I want to do what you do. You know why? Because it looks awesome. Like this is why many want to presume to be teachers because you look at me up here and you think, oh man, you know, that's so cool. And I always think when a girl comes up and says that to me, I think, man, I must have made that look way easier than it really is. Because it is hard. I mean, it continues to be hard. I've done this for a long time. And I have to say, it has not gotten easier. In fact, it has gotten harder. Because my sense of what the task is has grown. And my sense of my own inadequacy to meet the task has grown. And so I never get to put aside that healthy kind of fear that, should associate, that we should associate with teaching. Nor should I want to. And so every week I feel it. Every week I feel, can I do justice to the topic? And I know that in fact I can't, but I still have to get up here and do the best that I can because this is the thing that the Lord has given me to do. So if you're sitting there and you watch me teach or someone else teach and you can feel something inside of your stomach just beginning to just eat up your insides, like I need to do that, I need to do that, I think it's entirely possible that maybe the Lord is moving you towards taking on some kind of teaching role. And so please hear me say this because I wish that someone had told me this. If you decide to be a teacher and if the Lord is calling you to that, you need to understand that first of all, you will Always live your life with a reverent fear of the judgment of the Lord on what you have to say. You must always keep that before you. If it ever becomes easy for you, you need to check your heart. And then secondly this, because it took me a long time to figure this out. It is not enough to just love the idea of teaching. You have to love those whom you are teaching. You have to feel compassion for your students. And I'll tell you what, when I first started teaching, I did not have that. I thought, I know more than they do, I care more than they do, and I'm going to open up the fire hose and just let it go on them. And I'm going to show them what it looks like to love God's word because they don't love it like they should. That is how I entered into teaching. And it took me time. It took me knowing the stories behind the faces that I was teaching. That's why this room matters to me more than any other room that I go and talk to. Because you are faces and you are lives and you are experiences and you are difficulties and you are wins. You are people who I know. And I have to have that connection to you or otherwise my teaching becomes just me speaking out into the void and just being a pants. Smarty pants. I wanted that to be on the audio. That was actually, thank you, Lord, that it cut out on that. So what you have to understand is if you feel in you this stirring desire to teach in any capacity, always remember that you will walk in fear and you have to walk in compassion towards those that you are teaching. We have no charge to teach those for whom we feel no empathy. We must love the people who we are teaching. And it's been so interesting. I interact with women who blog or who have sort of these virtual ministries. Like they don't have an on-the-ground ministry. They just have a presence on the web. And it's so hard for them to keep moving forward because their ministry is not connected to actual people. I mean, it is, but they have no feedback loop. And I'm so grateful that the Lord keeps me in a setting where I know you and you know me. Because here's another thing. I said there were only two, but I actually lied. So you need to have that fear. You need to have compassion. And you need to know that perfection is not required. 
I mean, you guys know this. You've been around me long enough. You've been here for the weeks where I make up words. Anybody remember the week that I meant to say antagonistic and made up the word animositorious? <laughs> that was last semester. <laughs> yeah, good. Good stuff. Or sometimes where I say, there are three things you need to know about this, and I get through two, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what the third one was. And then we just keep going those weeks. Or where I think, wasn't it last week I forgot about what the word grafting was, and I had to get that from some girl on the front row? Yeah, good, really good. And you know what I wish? Like in my head, I wish that I knew how to edit the audio so that I could clean that up a little bit. But I don't. And I think that the Lord has kept me ignorant about how to use that, that editing tool. Because a lot of what we listen to online and a lot of what we see that is video driven, all of those things, people have edited those and they have cleaned them up. And you know what? They're, in most cases, they're selling something and that's exactly what they should do. But what you need to understand, I think sometimes what we start to think is, I could never do that. That's so polished. And, and the thing is, is that's not what's required of you as a teacher. You are allowed to come and you are allowed to be human you are allowed to not always get it right. And you are allowed to acknowledge, hey, this is a tough passage and I'm not really sure what it means, but here's what I think it means. But other people think it means this. So you don't have to know it all, but you have to always keep before you this tension between what you are able to do and what you are not able to do and live in right fear and live in compassion before it. So last week we saw that professing one thing and doing another was not okay And this week, we see that a teacher's actions have to match her words, right? It's going to be a practice what you preach kind of week. So when we teach as one who will give an account, there are some things also that we have to keep keep our, our heads around, and that's this. Because I have a public speaking gift, that is not the same thing as having a teaching gift, right? You understand that? And so it's always a tension to not employ the tools of public speaking in such a way that they overwhelm or outshine the message that it is that I'm teaching from Scripture. So I have to be careful with humor. You guys know me. You know I like to make everybody laugh, right? Right? But if at the end of a lesson all you remember is the funny thing that I said instead of what it was, it was the point of the message, then I've used humor in a way that doesn't honor the Lord. Storytelling. You know, some sermons these days are a bunch of stories strung together punctuated by a few verses. It is really good to tell a story to drive home an illustration or a point, but it is not good to make the whole thing about a story. And that is a real temptation for, 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 the, for the teacher. Because storytelling is easy and it makes people relate to me. It makes me feel like I've connected. And so it's very important for me to always be thinking, am I misusing these or using these the way that I should? Hyperbole. You know, overstating your point to make your point. Jesus did it, so it's not a device that we can't use, but it's a device that we can misuse. have to be really careful with that. And then just immaturity or sloppy scholarship. If I don't acknowledge my own limitations, like I need you guys to know, I don't know Hebrew or Greek. But when I tell you a Greek meaning for a word, you can be sure that I have really checked my sources to make sure that I didn't come up with something that doesn't fit. But I don't know them. You need to know that about I don't have a seminary degree. I'm just me. And if you feel animositorious about that, then you need to deal with it. All right, so let's keep moving. Verse 2, James says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Okay, James, here we go. So, 
what's, your, what's your thing that you don't have self-control over? Let's just shout them out. No, let's not do that. But what is it? I mean, chocolate. Is that what I, yes, there we go. Chocolate right there. You have something that is your food kryptonite, right? Something that you just like, I have to put that in my mouth and I have to put the whole package in my mouth right now. So we all have self-control issues. Maybe it is you love um, reality TV. There's some show that you love, right? So think of your guilty pleasures. What are those things, you know? There's something that we all habitually give into and enjoy and, and we think, I know I ought to be trying to control this, but I just think this one is kind of beyond me. You know, and we're talking about funny things. There may be something that is less funny that you give into again and again and again. But did you notice what James said here? Because it's pretty shocking. He said in verse 2 that if we are able to control our tongues, the rest of our self-control issues would be a cakewalk. James just said here that the supreme act of self-control is to be able to control your tongue. I can relate to that. Anybody else? And here's something that we don't often think about. There are some sins that you will never have the opportunity to commit. Do you realize that? Like you just, you won't have the, so for example, if you stay single your entire life, you will never sin against a spouse, Right? So there are some sins that are not universal, that only some people will have access to commit, but not sins of the tongue. Sins of the tongue are universally available to all of us. And according to James, we all avail ourselves of them. Controlling the tongue is the supreme act of self-control. If we could nail that down, James says, we would be sinless. So if you find it difficult to control your tongue, I want you to know you are not alone. This is universal to the human condition. And James and the Lord do not want us to be left in ignorance about its implications or its nature. So he goes on in verse 3 and he says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So he gives us these two metaphors here. He gives us a bit that controls a horse and a rudder that controls the ship. And what is the relationship that he's showing us here? That something that is very, very small controls something that is very, very large. And this is the way that our tongues are. He says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Okay, how do you feel about it, James? So let's see, what is he saying here? The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So the rabbis used to say, we have have two ears and we have two eyes, but we have only one tongue. And that tongue is walled in by teeth and lips for a reason. (laughs) Because it is such a potential for danger when we exercise it without thought. But we have two eyes that we might better see, and we have two ears that we might better listen. And we have just this one tongue, but it is such a source of folly for us. And he compares it here to a fire starter. He says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It is set among our members, staining the whole body. And when I read that, (coughs) excuse me, 
staining the whole body. And this whole fire imagery, I started thinking about how um, when we do my favorite thing, camping, that was irony. When we, when we camp, you know, one of the things that I love the most about it is how when you get home, what do you smell like? You smell like smoke. Your sleeping bag smells like smoke. Your hair smells like smoke. Everything you brought camping smells like smoke. Is that because you were on fire? No, it is because you were near the fire, right? And I think that's what we see here is that when our tongues are running around starting forest fires, then everything about us will smell like the smoke that rises from those fires that we have begun. And this image that he says here, he says, and is set on fire by hell. Did anybody have anything different in the translation? It's Gehenna is that word, Gehenna, which is the valley of Himnon. So it's a familiar image to his hearers. James's hearers would have immediately known what he was referencing. He basically, as he wants to conjure up the absolute worst source of sins of the tongue, he goes to the most abominable place that his listeners would have understood. Because Gehenna was the garbage dump that was outside of Jerusalem. And it was 24 hours a day on fire. It would be like if Mount Louisville over there, that landfill... We're continually smoking and burning, just refuse, burning and burning and burning. And so that's the image that they would have gotten in their heads is a fire that never goes out, a consuming fire that is just burning and garbage and stench and smoke rising to the heavens. But that valley had another history as well. In the Old Testament, the Valley of Himnon was the place where people sacrificed their children to the god of Molech. In the fire. And this is the kind of place that James associates with wrong uses of our tongue. A level of destruction, a level of despair and disgrace that is beyond just, hey, you're going to hurt someone with your words. That's more than sticks and stones, isn't it? So he goes on in verse 7 and he says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What is the imagery we have there at the end? It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's a snake. That's right. So again, just another very clear reference to evil. You know what the first sin after the fall was. The first sin after the first sin. Do you realize it was a sin of the tongue? When Adam turns and blames God for what's happened. Serpents' tongues. I think about that image. I think about the idea that our tongue is a restless evil full of venom. I think about that. Like that idea that my tongue itself is a snake. Because I've known this to be true. Of myself. And you guys need to know as I stand here before you today to teach this lesson that this is, this is my besetting sin. That as is often the case, someone who is gifted in speech is also able to do great harm with her speech. And so if you knew my history and if you had been a member of my family since the days of my childhood, you would know that I have a sharp, sharp tongue that only in recent years has learned to be dulled and has learned to be still. And so within my family and within my friendships, there are those who carry the wounds and the scars of my past words. 
and they're written on my heart. As a child, I, um, I wrote a particularly hurtful letter to my cousin, and because she was angry about the person who was in the letter, her stepfather, she left it out where he could find it. Do you know that my uncle still feels hurt over that letter, even though I'm a 45-year-old woman? So I understand very well about the fires of Gehenna because I have lit them. And I know that each of you probably has some story that is similar to that. But I tell you this because the fact that the Lord allows me to stand up in front of you on a weekly basis and speak words that might give life is absolutely the grace of the gospel on me. It should not be so. It should not be so. But the Lord has done this thing. So verse 9, moving on. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And so here he appeals just to logic, and he says, how can we be both of these things at the same time? How can we be both those who give life and those who speak death? It should not be so. And he here is carrying forward these pairs that he has given us throughout the book of James, right? Chapter 1, we had the double-minded man, right? And then in chapter 2, we had the double standard of favoritism. And here in chapter 3, we see the double tongue. The tongue that both speaks life and speaks death. And James is saying it must not be so. So here's what I want us to take away from this message this week. Other than you getting to watch me. I really need a Kleenex in front of you. First is this. Words matter to God. Words matter to God. And here's the thing. Words matter to us, right? Like we know some things about word usage. We know that words come in and out of favor. So uh, if I said to you, if you said, hey, how was your Friday night? And I said, man, we had a really groovy time. You'd be like, really? It was groovy, huh? Or if I said, oh, yeah, it was rad. Or if I said, it was awesome. Do you see how we're walking through the decades there? Words come in and out of favor with us. Oh, hey there. For our listening audience, that was me rubbing my nose with a Kleenex. Words come in and out. We have, we have like faddish words, right? So it used to say that people said um to fill spaces. And then they began to say, you know, and now it's like. So when my kids would come home from school and they'd be like, and like, and I'm home now. And I, I like, I'd like a snack, mom. And like, then can we go do this? And like, and so we used to have one of those, you remember that game Taboo? So we would keep the little buzzer out. And every time someone said like, I'd hit it. So that they would realize, oh, I'm just sort of filling in words there that aren't necessary at all. Um, so we know that words, words have power and that words matter. They matter to us. We choose our words with care. Um, if I say to you, do you like my new haircut? And you pause and say, oh, it's adorable. Instead of, oh my gosh, your hair looks great. I'm going to read something into that. We're always listening for the subtext right behind the words. So words matter to us. 
And even though words in our, uh, in our thinking come in and out of favor, like right now, amazing, everything is amazing. And I thought it was so funny that Jimmy Kimmel or one of those shows has started counting how many times people say amazing in a particular segment of The Bachelor. She's an amazing woman. It's been an amazing journey. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And so we wear words out. We actually take away their meaning by overuse. There are all of these ways that we use words that indicate that we believe that words are transitory. But is the word of the Lord transitory? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And it's interesting, there's a movie in the theaters right now, Son of God, and then we've got Noah coming out pretty quickly after that. And a few years back, probably a long many years back, there was that film, The Passion of the Christ. And so there's a tendency among Christians to say, oh my gosh, this is amazing because this film's going to come out. Did you see what I did there? Amazing. Um, This film is going to come out and I'm going to take my unbelieving friend and they're going to watch the gospel unfold on a screen before them and they are going to get it. They're going to finally understand. They're going to see the suffering of Christ portrayed on a screen and they're going to understand As though the God of the universe sat on his hands in anticipation for 2,000 years waiting for the medium of film to be developed so that he could finally get his point across. Please hear me. The idea that the book is always better than the movie is never more relevant than in these cases. You know what I heard, when I, what I thought when I heard that there was a Noah movie coming out? I know 450 women who will know where that movie says the right thing and says the wrong thing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. By all means, go to these movies and be entertained. Do not ask them to teach you the words of God. When God chose the way that he would communicate the truth of who he is, he chose to do so through words. They are sufficient for salvation and all good things. So words matter to God and words should therefore matter to us. Words have the power to create and the power to destroy. God illustrates this for us, doesn't he? We see him begin creation with let there be. He speaks worlds into being. He is one whose words have supernatural power to create. You and I don't have supernatural power to create with our words, but we do have a natural power to create with our words. And the church can be a little fuzzy on this at times, right? We think that if we pray in Jesus' name, then we have supernaturally blessed our prayer and the Lord must then do what we want. Or we say, I'm going to pray a hedge of protection around you while you're traveling. And we think because we invoke the phrase hedge of protection that something supernatural will happen. Or we say, in Jesus' name I bind this. Or I say this is going to be withheld. And we think that our words have a supernatural ability to create something that was not there. And that is to ascribe something to ourselves that is only true of God. But please understand that our words do have the power to create. Speaking honesty creates trust. When you are honest with those in your life, you build a trust relationship with them. You create something that was not there before and now is. Speaking forgiveness, I forgive you for your offense. 
asking for an apology, please forgive me for offending you, these create healing in our relationships. These are words that matter and that we ought to take seriously. Speaking encouragement to someone creates confidence. Have you seen this with your children? Have you seen this with a coworker? I believe in you. And I'm not talking about whack-a-doodle, how to make your child have good self-esteem. I'm talking about truthful encouragement that we offer. Have you ever known someone who had the gift of encouragement? I'm like, it's an actual gift because I didn't get it. Like, I had to learn it. And I'm still not great at it. But who doesn't want that person in their lives? Why? Because they create something around them. They create an atmosphere where we are free to try things that we might not have tried before. So we have the power to create with our words, and we also have the power to destroy. Gossip and slander destroy what? Character. You ever heard the term character assassination? Those are the result of gossip and slander. And so when we decide that we're going to opt into those things, whether it's in the form of a prayer request or however you want to make it look like it's not what it is, we are saying, I will tear down character with this for the sake of a little fun on my part. Criticism. Criticism destroys relationship. It destroys confidence. Critique. Okay? I mean, think about this. Think about how hard it is when you, I mean, we just had an incident in our home where um, we had watched a movie together and one of the kids just loved this movie, right? And the other kid who picked up this critique thing from I don't know where, I mean, I don't know where that's coming from, says, oh yeah, I really, really liked it, but, and then, you know, listed out the things that he didn't like about the movie. And do you know what happened to the person who loved the movie? Just, you could see the withering. You could see just this, and I thought, that's, I mean, I'm, I can't, like, at the, at the same time that I want to say, hey, don't do that, I have to say, don't do that because I know firsthand, I know firsthand how tough that is. And we do this a lot with the people who are the closest to us. We go, oh, my gosh, you did such a good job on X, Y, and Z. But you know what? You know what you could do that would make it even better next time? And as someone who blogs, as someone who's on a platform where everyone gets to speak into what I just said, let me tell you how hard it is to keep creating when you know that even if you create something that is good and right and pleasing to the Lord, someone is going to come and shred it just for the sport of it. I can have 10 people say, this blog post you wrote spoke deeply to me. And I can have one person say, you are trying to tear down the church. And which one do you think will stick in my head? So it's a constant battle on my part to say I have to keep saying things that matter and writing things that matter and know that my judge is my heavenly father. But we're so easy with the critique. We're so quick with the critique. So if you have a, I have a friend who has a a business that um, allows for like, you know, you can leave a, an evaluation of how you liked her service after she's provided a service for you. She had a hundred positive comments out there. She had one person for whom she had a week where she couldn't get things done on her regular time schedule, and this person got angry, and you know what they did? They left a negative comment out there online, and it it started hurting her, her business. Like, a year later, the comment still lives out there. This woman is no longer angry about it, but it continues to do devastation to this girl's ability to run her business. We don't think, do we? We don't think. You got to look this week at all of these really happy areas. Social media, I can't tell you how glad I am that there was no social media when I was in middle school at the height of my reckless tongue use. 
Can you imagine what someone like me could have done? If I can send a letter to my cousin that says something hurtful, what if I had tweeted out to 500 followers? Terrible. And the things that we'll say about our children online or the things that we'll say about our political views because we don't understand that if we tweet it out to all of our followers or we put it out on Facebook, that what we might actually be doing is sacrificing a future face-to-face conversation with someone with whom I have mutual respect and trust because I had to just blurp out my ideas to everybody and get it off my chest. Face-to-face communication is always so much better for any of those conversations that are going to be difficult. Or if you're frustrated, I mean, think about, does your frustration last? No. Like, I remember when I first got married, I got frustrated about something that Jeff had done. And so I called my mom and I told her about how frustrated I was. And two years later, something came up and my mom was like, well, you know, he's kind of like that. I was like, why would you say that? And she's like, well, remember that time? And I, like, you don't think, it's not my mom's fault. It's just that in my mind, I had moved on. And my poor mom still thinks that that like characterized everything that this man had ever done. And I had to come back and say, oh, I, I'm sorry. I just had one, I had like 15 minutes of bad day with him. It's all been good ever since. But we put out these defining statements in our frustration or maybe because we want to laugh. I mean, the stuff that we put out there about our kids a lot of times, like, oh, so funny, he smeared his diaper all over himself. Yeah, funny to you, but if he were 13 years old standing over your shoulder while you're posting that, would you have put the same post out there? I mean, think how you felt about those things when you were 13. So it's very difficult because we want to say that our words are spoken and they vanish. But I'm here to tell you, and I'm sure you know, that they don't. Grumbling. Grumbling destroys unity. And I'm not talking about never raising an issue. I'm talking about these forms of speech. Grumbling, sarcasm, criticism, gossip. What is the thing that all of these kinds of speech share in common? What is their goal? It's to self-elevate. It's to make me higher and you lower. I know some of you are sad because I'm hating on sarcasm and you can tell that clearly I'm fluent in it. Sarcasm always has a victim. There's always a victim for sarcasm, okay? So here's what I try to do as a recovering sarcastic person who can quit anytime I want. I'm trying to cross from sarcasm to irony. Irony is when you compare two things against each other And and the tension between them either brings humor or brings an insight. And that's different than sarcasm, but most of us don't know the difference between that. Irony doesn't have a victim. Sarcasm does. So just be aware. I'm all for being, you can tell, I'm all for being funny. And I I can be self-deprecating. I will tell you the dumbest things about myself, and we can all laugh about them. I am for that all day, every day. But be aware when your desire to be funny in a cutting way has a victim at the other end, particularly if it's a child. Because when it comes to talking to children, you know, like, what is it they said? There's some crazy statistic that 80% of the population doesn't even understand sarcasm, which means basically I've been speaking Chinese to most everybody I come in contact with my whole life. But you know who really doesn't understand it? You know who has to learn it is a child. It's a, it's, a, it's a skill, it's a learned kind of speech. And if my child is going to learn it, I don't want them to learn it from me. Because they can learn that in the locker room or at the lunch table, but when we're at home, it's going to be a safe place. There's going to be safe speech here. It's going to be a place where we create community and trust, and you know that you can come here and you can say what you're thinking, and it is safe for you to share it here. Words have the power to create. Words have the power to destroy. How are you going to use your words?
You have enormous, for as depressing it is, is to sit here and think about all the ways that we have used words to destroy. Do you understand that you are equally, if not more, capable of having the power to create with your words? Flip the switch. Flip the switch. Or just say nothing until you can get it straight in your head, right? That verse that haunts me all the time, even a fool is considered wise when he holds his tongue, that's me. That's me. I've told some of you, I write a sticky note when I go into meetings that says, don't talk. And then people think I'm smart. And all I was doing was trying to keep from getting fired, you know? Words have the power to create and the power to destroy. Words have the power to condemn and the power to save. So we saw this week in Matthew 12 that by our words we will be condemned or by our words we will be saved. Does that mean that if I practice good speech that I can save myself through my pure speech? No, it means that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. All that our words are doing is announcing the true state of our heart to others. That's all they're doing. They only condemn us insofar as they reveal within us what is already condemned. But if you have a heart that is transformed by the gospel, it may very well be that salt water is still coming from a freshwater spring. But ultimately, as we move on, we become more and more pure in our speech. We haven't even talked about swearing, right? When people think about having a clean mouth, don't they just usually think they got to stop dropping the F-bomb? If only, if only it were that simple. But can you look back and see, I once was like this. But by the grace of God, I'm not as much that way anymore. I'm learning. I'm trying to be a good student of my sins of the tongue. I'm trying to learn to hate them. To hate them more than I love the satisfaction of a verbal win. Of an argument that I dominated in. I'm learning to hate the idea that I wanted to dominate in the first place. And I am not who I was anymore. Words have the power to condemn and the power to save. No words more powerful than the words of the gospel themselves. And this is why it matters to us that our speech come in line with what the Lord would have us to say. Because as children of God, you and I are entrusted with the most important words that can ever be spoken. Why would we indulge in patterns of speech that in any way cloud or compromise the message that Christ has died for your sins? He is risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Repent. Nothing we say is more important than that. So we must Be careful to be good articulators of the gospel. We should speak as our words were written down. What if you always spoke as though your words were being written down? In many cases now they are. Like in a text or on Facebook where you're like, oh, I had deleted, it's gone. No, it's really never gone. It's not really ever gone. But what if everything that we said, we said as though it were being written down? I think it would change the way that we speak. And we must recognize that words are a product of our hearts. They're a product of our hearts. So here are some principles of word power. Less is more. Less is more when talking to others. But when you're talking to God, maybe more is more. We should talk less to others and more to God. And our speech would fall more in line with where it should be. And then next, think before you speak. Pretty simple. 
And these are all actually tied to some of the Proverbs that were in your homework. This is that whole, like James has already talked about, being quick to listen and slow to speak. Give yourself time to think before you give yourself the satisfaction of moving to words. Save difficult conversations for face-to-face communication. Difficult or important. We talked about this last semester. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Know the limitations of the medium through which you are communicating, basically. Don't text your girlfriend that you're breaking up with her, right? We would say that to any dude. So there are only certain things that should be handled in a text or an email. And then last, not all words need to be said. I was talking to a group of women at the front before we got started, and I was saying, do you think that this message hits men as much as it hits women? And we were like, no, there's no way. Because honestly, if you look at the statistics, I think men say in the course of their lives, they say fewer words than women do. So we felt pretty sad about that for a few minutes because we thought, great, James is writing to women here. And then we kind of circled back around and we were like, no, because I think what men understand in a way that women don't is that often, and I'm speaking in generalities here, is that often the words that were left unsaid were the words that most needed to be said. So understand, are you a person who speaks too much or are you a person who does not speak enough? Or in one relationship, do you tend to speak too much? And in another relationship, do you tend to hold back too much and ask the Father to bring you to a place where you speak the correct amount in the correct way? Because here's another thing you're probably familiar with. Saying the right thing in the wrong tone. Yeah? Honey, put your shoes on versus, honey, put your shoes on. Completely different, isn't it? So there's a lot laid before us this week with our sins of the tongue. And I want you to know, if you feel weighed down by this, that you should feel great hope that James has addressed it here. Because it means that the Lord is willing and faithful to deal with us with this most difficult of sins. That he wants our words to be an accurate reflection that we are children of his and that we value above all else his words and the proclamation of the gospel to a lost and dying world. So my question for you as we close is this. As you move through this week, where can you stop speaking words of destruction? What relationship most needs that from you? Where can you stop? And how are you going to remind yourself? Where is your sticky note? Like where are you going to place your don't speak sticky note so that you can keep that before you and begin to learn a a spirit-driven discipline for that? And then the second is this. Where can you begin to speak words that create this week? Who most needs you to speak encouragement to them? Who most needs you to speak gentle honesty to them? Who most needs those words from you? The tongue has in it the power of life and death we saw this week. And those who love it will eat its fruit. May we have tongues that bear the fruit of the Spirit in every relationship that we touch. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this week knowing our need of you in a way that we don't always know it. We cry out to you and say, Lord, if genuine faith chooses words with care, teach us better how to be good choosers with our words. We pray, Father, that we would speak words that 
create, not words that destroy. And that if we feel a godly conviction over our tongues, that it would cause us to mourn and to hate our sin and to turn from it. Because, Father, you say that you comfort those who mourn. And I stand before this group of women today as someone who mourns and who grieves over her words repeatedly. But I also stand here as one who can attest to your redeeming power over the tongue. I ask that we might all know that in our lives and in our relationships. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.